Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. This episode features a conversation I had with designer Mike Kuniaski last fall. We talk about how Fortune 50 companies are approaching IoT, the mind shift needed when designing for ecosystems, and embedding intelligence in existing products. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Mary Tressler. I'm here today with Mike Kuniaski, who is a user experience designer, researcher, and author. Uh, Mike is a member of the Innovation Services Group at PARC. Um, Mike, thank you for joining me. Yep, of course. It is my pleasure. I'd love to start off with you just telling um, those listening a little bit about you, about your work, and what you're working on these days. Sure. So um, my uh, my background is as a UX designer, and uh Originally, was uh, uh, I was a UX designer kind of before the term UX w- uh, was around, but uh, I uh, have always tried to look at the experience of digital products from a wide variety of angles rather than just from like um, what is the interface or like what is the um, like when I when I started it was all very uh, kind of cognitive psychology based, so it was hmm. all like people counting mouse clicks and stuff like that. And uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, it was all graphic design based, where, uh, where it was all people uh, uh, essentially making pretty things that didn't necessarily have anything to do with what with what people wanted to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, design. It was designed for the sake of design. Um, hmm. You know, so so uh, nowadays, my job at Park is so Innovation Services Group is essentially Park's consulting arm. Okay. And most of our clients are, of course, Xerox is still a kind of Park's biggest client uh, because it's our parent company, but it is no longer kind of uh, our group's biggest client for sure. We mostly work with kind of Fortune 50 companies. Hmm. And a lot of what we do is we essentially uh, reduce the risk of adopting novel technologies through the use of user experience design and ethnography and essentially a kind of innovation strategy. Hmm. Uh, but these days, uh, a lot of that is in the form of looking at uh, things that are broadly in the Internet of Things. And part of that is because that's where my expertise is. I've been playing with hard, uh, connected hardware of various forms for 25 years. And part of it is because that's where there's a lot of interest. And it's gotten me to really think about the entire ecosystem that the Internet of Things is. And it's not just essentially like hooking up a, a sensor to a thing, uh, to the Internet, and uh, sticking it somewhere in your house. It's this like, much larger ecosystem from my perspective. And so that's what we've been exploring a lot because that's actually what's interesting to our, uh, to our customers is understanding not just how this piece of cheap commodity hardware, which can be replicated very easily by any one of their competitors, is going to create a advantage for them, but how this one specific piece of hardware is going to create an ecosystem that is going to be very competitive and is going to create significant value. Hmm. So, so that's been my perspective. That's, that's been really the vast majority of my work for the last, like, I mean, at Park for a couple of years. And, you know, before that, I was doing something very similar as a consultant to consumer electronics companies. So uh, I essentially developed kind of sketched out si- similar systems for uh, a number of big companies whose products you may already own. <laughs> Well, that's. I'm curious. Um, are you working mostly with companies that are trying to embed intelligence into existing um, hardware, or creating something from scratch, or is it a mix? Well, it's so it is both. But the thing is that even if you are embedding intelligence into a uh, 
into an existing piece of electronics. Like it, we do stuff where we do things that uh, are essentially like adding electronics to things that are not currently connected. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, uh, like we work with a big uh, consumer chemical company uh, that, uh, that essentially they know chemistry. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're like a many billion dollar company that knows chemistry. But they're like, well, what can we do when you stick a sensor, a connected sensor on this? And so we're working with them on that. But we also work with kind of companies that already know about electronics. But the difference is, is that they don't necessarily see themselves in terms of this kind of like ecosystem play. The thing that's actually interesting to me right now, the thing that, that we're trying to get over, the hope that we're trying to get over is that, uh, so I was reading this book that was uh, published by Philips Design on their ambient intelligence project. Uh, so they actually thought through the entire Internet of Things thing about 15 years ago, and then they couldn't make any money on it, and all those people went away. And uh, now it's actually a real thing. But uh, they left some really good documentation. So I was reading the Philips Design uh, book, and uh, they had a, a very interesting point from uh, you know uh, mine and probably uh, one of Tim O'Reilly's favorite theorists, uh, Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> and, and so McLuhan essentially said that the content of every new medium is the old medium. So that Hmm. every new medium subsumes the old medium as the content until you actually figure out what the new medium is. So, you know, when when television came about, uh, the stuff that was initially on television was essentially radio until they actually figured out what television was was good for. So right now, um, you know, and when radio came out, it was people reading the newspaper on the radio and until they figured out what radio was good for. And, you know, it's like that going all the way back. So right now in the Internet of Things, we're in this uh, place where the content of the inner, uh, the Internet of Things is the pre-Internet of Things world. So it's all of the things that are either currently not connected, which are everyday objects, or uh, it's the electronic things, which are being kind of shoehorned. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get over that hump and try to figure out, okay, what are the kind of natively interesting qualities of the Internet of Things mm. that make it really different than... Um, you know, home automation, which has been around for 30 years, has been an abject failure on every front. <laughs> and uh, so, or uh, uh, or just simply, like, connecting, like, appliances to the Internet. Like, you know, I once wrote a history of, uh, this is years ago, I wrote a history of all the different smart refrigerators that have been around <laughs> and why every one of them was a failure. And I wrote that thing five years ago or seven years ago, something like that. And like since then, there's been like basically one every six months. Mm. You know, and, and, and that history went back like 20 years. <laughs> like, anyway, so what we're trying to get over that house. Well, that's, that's, that, that's my day job. That's your day job. Wow. You mentioned the smart refrigerator. I, I saw that piece, uh, the refrigerator piece. I mean, do you think people are going to say the same thing about wearables? Um. To some extent. I mean, wearables as, as a class is really weird because it's just like it describes kind of where the thing is, not what it is. It's like it's referring to kitchenable. Right. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm making a kitchenable. Yeah. You know, uh, like, what, what does that mean? Right. What does it do for you? Yeah. So, it is. It is interesting. I mean, the thing is, it's it's these these devices that are, you know, that are smart in quotes, right. I say. But they're really not connected in the ecosystem. It sounds to me like what you're talking about is a big piece of the the mind shift needed is to try to forget sort of your past and move into the space and say, what is this good for? Right. Yeah. One of the things that we're doing is we're applying a lot of service design Mm. uh, principles to this. Like we're really looking hard at service design as a model. And the funny thing is, service design isn't even a mature thing. It's not like we can like take a wholly 
now we, we can import an entire discipline. I mean, service design w- was just kind of like a couple of puzzle pieces just a couple of years ago. And uh, so it wasn't like a, f- a finished product as it is. But we're trying to take those puzzle pieces and we're trying to say, okay, now what happens when all of these different components that, uh, of, of a service, you know, these, these, these different things that, that uh, a service design is, uh, is looking at, like, you know, they, they describe kind of like front of house, back of house, different kinds of uh, players that are in that, different actors within that space. Mm-hmm. What if we replace some of those with devices? You know, what if we replace uh, 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 some of those things with, uh, with sensors hmm. and, and actuators? What happens to the service? In, in, in that in that situation, so Interesting. so that's uh, so, that, so that's uh, that's what we're trying. Uh, that's kind of how we're trying to get our, how we're trying to envision an entire ecosystem mm-hmm. without actually having any of the pieces of it in place. Right. So interesting. Okay, I'm curious how do how do you define service design? So so to me, uh, so there's like this slippery slope between like service design <laughs> and UX design, and like it's up. Uh, so, so I think I think service design. Um, so I think UX design is more digital, and service design is uh, allows itself to include things like a, a poster that's on a wall mm-hmm. in in a lobby, or a, a little card that gets mailed to people, uh, or a human being that they can that they can talk to, and kind of what what does that being a human being say, and mm-hmm. under what circumstances are the, uh, they say it. So I think service design kind of takes a slightly broader view, whereas UX design is like still, and I think usefully, still focused largely on the digital aspect of it. Right, right. No, that makes, that's probably the best definition I've heard so far. That that makes a lot of sense. So just, you talked a little bit about what you think is interesting in this space. I mean, are there particular products or companies or people that catch your eye? Uh, Let me see. I... I like uh, what uh, WeThings has been uh, has hmm. been doing in kind of the health space. Okay. And the reason being is is that they are not afraid to make physical products of a wide variety of form factors that are uh, look really different from each other, mm-hmm. but that still essentially feed into the same core idea and the same core service. Hmm. And so, so, uh, so I think I, I think I think they're interesting. Who else is doing work that's that's interesting? I mean, I think as an individual practitioner, I think David Rose has uh, done a lot by uh, essentially elucidating the mm-hmm. metaphor of magical or enchanted object experience mm-hmm. as a useful way of communicating to people who have never dealt with a chair that adjusts on your behalf that there is such a thing and that you can interact with it and you can mm-hmm. relate to it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, so I think they're interesting. Who, uh, uh, who else? I'm actually really fascinated, maybe un- unnecessarily so, but I'm really fascinated by GE's first build project, which is they're reinventing their appliance businesses by kind of crowdsourcing hmm. uh, uh, innovation and crowdsourcing ideas uh, around it. Hmm. I think it's much more effective than quirky and it's much more interesting than quirky. And uh, not not to disparage Quirky because I think they're doing some inter- interesting stuff, but I think that they uh, they diverged far too fast. And uh, now I'm not sure it, it, what it what it is that Quirky even does. Mm. So so I mean that's uh, um, but I think I think GE's first build is interesting. And also I mean that's part of it is that is that my I have a deep long seated love for appliances <laughs> and for furniture. 
And, and I, because they are the tools of our everyday life. And if anything becomes the content of this new Internet of Things thing first, it's them. Right. And so what's, what's interesting to me is that they have this already existing set of um, affordances, to use the uh, HCI term, which, is, which means uh, people know what to do with them and how to do it. They, they have a set of expectations. Mm-hmm. And now the, this set of things can now just utilize this amazing set of, of sensing and actuation and meaning-making and uh, statistical uh, analysis technologies that are available up in the cloud to do the things that they have always done, but do it better. Hmm. And so I'm just really interested in kind of how, uh, you know, how does that, how does intelligence affect the appliance industry, basically? Right. Well, and the, and the things that you're pointing out here, I mean, they're, they're touching on a much deeper, like, what is the meaning? Right. Right. Um, which kind of leads me to my next, my next question, which is more around what you think, um, what you think the most promising parts of, of IOT are, I mean, in terms of how it affects society, um, you know, or, you know, tell me a little bit more about what you're, what grabs you. So, I mean, I'm broadly very, very positive on this thing. Like, like there are ways to spin IOT as a, you know, Orwellian cyberpunk, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, anti-future of things that spy on you from every corner. And, oh, yeah, they will do that. But I'm actually not that interested in that aspect of it. And I think, actually, that uh, the humans are pretty good at negotiating their technologies, mm-hmm. you know, um, even though it sometimes takes a while and it takes, you know, a, a court order in D.C. to stop some uh, technological um, uh, advance <laughs> <laughs> from impinging on people's rights. Right. Uh, uh, you know, which I shall rename nameless. Um, <laughs> but I think that broadly... The, the, uh, what the Internet of Things enables us to do, essentially what ubiquitous computing, which is really where I started all this, mm. and the notion of ubiquitous computing, the notion of kind of information processing as this kind of gas that embeds itself into your entire everyday world, I think is very powerful and broadly very positive because it enables things to take advantage of information that they gather and processing that they that they have either on board or, or up in the cloud to uh, essentially either anticipate what we're doing, mm-hmm. compensate for our uh, limitations as human beings, mm-hmm. or augment our capabilities as, as human beings in a way that um, while, while still remaining kind of tools rather than master, right, uh, of us. Right. Um, although there's, there, you know, speaking philosophically, there, there, there is actually this interesting kind of erosion that's happening where, you know, kind of human beings are in some places, uh, in some situations becoming kind of like the actuators. Like when, when Waze tells you where to drive. So, uh, uh, right now, you know, for you, it's great. But what if they were doing it for, you know, to load balance, uh, the amount of traffic on various freeways? Mm-hmm. Well, sure, you might benefit from that, but you're essentially uh, acting as a actuator for their service. And that seems like a little weird. Like that. <laughs> You know, Uber seems like a little weird in that way. Like, you know, there's a, there's a human being at the wheel, but really what they're doing is they're uh, an extension of an, of an algorithm. Right, right. Um, it's, it's got the creep factor for sure. Who's, who's directing who? Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, I think that broadly speaking, I think, uh, I think the, uh, the effects 
uh, are positive because what this kind of environment could potentially do is not necessarily remove the drudgery from our lives, but move the drudgery to more interesting kinds of drudgery. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think you, you can you can already see that happening. I mean, you see that happening uh, wherever cell phones appear. You see that happening wherever kind of the internet appears. You know, people start doing different kinds of work. It's still work. It might be a repetitive uh, dr- drudgery work, but it may now be either more satisfying or better paying or kind of more uh, more positive in certain ways. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and of course, you know, nothing is wholly positive, especially when it comes to the effects of technology. But right. But you have a good, I like your, your outlook on it. Well, I mean, if I'm going to stay in this business, I have to be positive about it some, somehow. I mean, otherwise, I, you know, I go all Unabomber and uh, <laughs> uh, get myself a shack and smelt my own copper. <laughs> well, I also think you're realistic that there is, you know, there is a darker side to it, but you choose to focus your energies yes. on the positive. <laughs> um, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Can you talk a little bit, I've read some of your writing on predictive analytics. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship of data and predictive analytics as it relates to to IoT? Yeah. So so, so my, I am currently, you know, know, maybe this opinion will change a year or two from now or whenever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I am currently convinced that the most interesting thing about the Internet of Things is not in the things, it's not in the sensors. You know, they, they they are kind of a occasionally necessary, but often not that necessary component because a lot of the things that Internet of Things uh, does can be replicated by, you know, the sensors in your phone, which you already have. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, for personal stuff. But even for non-personal stuff, I mean, phones are so cheap, you can just, like, duct tape one to a thing and, <laughs> and then you've got a giant sensor pack and a network connection, you know, for free. But what I think is interesting uh, is the fact that the information that they are collecting can be statistically modeled in ways that could never happen when individual devices were isolated. Mm. That the the, the thing that is happening right now is that by connecting all of these different sensing devices, you turn that sensor input from this kind of very simple kind of gas gauge-like thing that might be useful uh, to somebody in one situation to a sequence of knowledge that can be modeled and can be much more broadly useful, um, especially when you have many, many different sources of information Hmm. that are coming together. And that, to me, I think, is a tectonic shift. Mm -hmm. Because now you can essentially reason on uh, giant quantities of information, but the endpoints that are collecting this information or acting on it can be incredibly small and thin so so that you get like the full power of these like enormous artificial intelligence systems these machine learning systems mm-hmm. but without any of the computational overhead or cost locally mm-hmm. and that to me is really powerful like every single little thing becomes as powerful as the most powerful computer on earth and um and and can then you know anticipate compensate it can work together with other things just in ways that, that were, I think, inconceivable before mm-hmm. this, uh, this shift. So that's why I'm really interested in, broadly speaking, predictive analytics. I mean, broadly speaking, actually, I, sh- I, sh- I should say kind of uh, machine learning, statistical modeling, but specifically in predictive mm-hmm. statistical modeling. Um, uh, so 
predictive machine learning, I should say, because I think that that holds, uh, like, really, like, that is the new superpower, right? Yeah. Like, that is literally looking into the future with some degree of confidence and being able to, uh, like, in a, in a place where you would never normally be able to look into the future, like, you know, uh, identifying how often I pick up my cup of coffee, mm-hmm. you know? I, my cup of coffee would never been able be able to tell me that before, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, but now I can't, and so uh, I mean, to some, again, to, to some degree, and that's really interesting, mm. and and that's really like a different relationship, and that's like to me a big shift in our relationship to our to our everyday objects and their relationship to how they can, you know, as per my earlier uh, point, how they can make make our lives better. Right. So that's why that that's why I'm really interested in the the predictive stuff right now. No, that makes perfect sense. I like the um, the phrase you use, sequence of knowledge. Yeah. It's it is interesting from that angle because that's where that is where the power is, right. um, and that's the you know, and it's what you do with that, right? right. Where it all. I mean, I mean, we, we, I think we as humans have just these incredibly lim- like we have no idea how limited our sensors are, mm-hmm. our our own personal ability to sense the world and to be able to kind of. Uh, like we're really good at pattern matching in certain ways mm-hmm. and we're really not very good in many other ways. And, um, and we've never really had a very good way to, to, uh, compensate for that. And now to some extent we do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's really interesting. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, I mean, you've been at this for a while in terms of, I find that you have a unique background in that you've been interested in this space for a lot longer than most people yeah. Have even been aware of it, and and from that perspective, I'm curious as to um, how you think sort of this emergence of of what we've been talking about as yeah. IoT has changed the role of designers. I mean, it's it's really like broadened what it means to be a designer for uh, for me. Uh, um, so you know, I've always been kind of uh, uh, maybe it's kind of a bad designer because I, I I never really cared about. Uh, Going way, way into the depths of making pixel perfect things on screen. It was much more interesting to me to look at kind of the human relationship with the thing that is being interacted with mm-hmm. than it was to look at, uh, whether it was, whether all the, um, all the things lined up on a grid correctly, which I think is important. It's just not my focus. Um, and I think that that actually is, at least for me, that's actually an attitude that, uh, is actually much more, and, and probably this is why I gravitated to, to the Internet of Things, it's actually much more valuable, you know, because you actually have to look at all these different aspects of people's relationship mm-hmm. to to the object, to the data the object produces, to the context that the object is in, to the other objects that the object might be interacting with. Mm-hmm. And, and it really requires kind of uh, this way of designing that's really systemic. Hmm. Which, which was always just kind of, which was always my uh, kind of the thing that I was most interested in. Right, right. Well, you know, it's also what you're talking about there. To me, it feels like you're talking about people that can sort of understand and and have the the understanding of context and perspective on what they're they're looking at. But in a lot of ways, designers are seen as problem solvers or right. or translators in a lot of cases, and yep. um, that seems to be a skill that's um, it's expected of all designers, regardless yep. of what you're doing. Yeah, and I, and I think that's that's the case here. I mean, I think the the thing about that's interesting about the Internet of Things space is that it requires, to some extent, the uh, intersection of a number of different disciplines that were a lot further apart before. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, 
it's it's actually much more at least on the on the device end of it it's much more industrial design driven than it is kind of visual design driven you know mm-hmm. the web like like i think there's this interesting thing like where like the web essentially uh derived a lot of its kind of design philosophy and practices and language from visual design from graphic design uh, mm-hmm. whereas design user experience design for the internet of things derives a lot more currently from industrial design mm-hmm. but you also have this um interaction design aspect of it which is kind of in the kind of in the between space between the kind of the visual design and the industrial design then you have all this kind of information architecture stuff because mm-hmm you're really looking at how people interact with the data that is produced by these devices. And uh, right now it's all very simplistic, but it's, you know, getting less so uh, uh, quite rapidly. Mm-hmm. You know, right, right now there's a lot of uh, kind of effort to distill everything down into whatever, a blinking leaf or a little growing thing or a, a dot. <laughs> but but th- that's going to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, well, I predict it's going to go away. <laughs> it's, uh, and... My predictions are often wrong. <laughs> well, uh, it's an interesting prediction, and I, I don't think you're far off there. Um, I appreciate you making time today, Mike. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Of course. You can reach Mike through his Twitter handle at Mike Kuniaski. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn, so you never miss an episode. <laughs>